0: Section Thirty One of the Theory of Moral Sentiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer W. The Theory of Moral Sentiments by Adam Smith. Part Six, Section Three, Chapter Two. Of the Order in Which Societies Are By Nature Recommended to Our Beneficence. The same principles that direct the order in which individuals are recommended to our beneficence likewise that direct in which societies are recommended to it those to which it is or may be of most importance are first and principally recommended to it the state or sovereignty in which we have been born and educated and under the protection of which we continue to live is in ordinary cases the greatest society upon whose happiness or misery our good or bad conduct can have much influence. It is, accordingly, by nature, most strongly recommended to us. Not only we ourselves, but all the objects of our kindest affections, our children, our parents, our relations, our friends, our benefactors, all those whom we naturally love and revere the most, are commonly comprehended within it, and their prosperity and safety depend in some measure upon its prosperity and safety. It is by nature, therefore, endeared to us not only by all our selfish, but by all our private benevolent affections. Upon account of our own connection with it, its prosperity and glory seem to reflect some sort of honor upon ourselves. When we compare it to other societies of the same kind, we are proud of its superiority, and mortified in some degree if it appears in any respect below them all the illustrious characters which it has produced in former times for against those of our own times envy may sometimes prejudice us a little its warriors its statesmen its poets its philosophers and men of letters of all kinds we are disposed to view with the most partial admiration and to rank them sometimes most unjustly above those of all other nations The patriot, who lays down his life for the safety, or even for the vainglory, of his society, appears to act with the most exact propriety. He appears to view himself in the light in which the impartial spectator naturally and necessarily views him, as but one of the multitude, in the light of that equitable judge of no more consequence than any other in it, but bound at all times to sacrifice and devote himself to the safety, to the service, and even to the glory of the greater number." But though the sacrifice appears to be perfectly just and proper we know how difficult it is to make it and how few people are capable of making it his conduct therefore excites not only our entire approbation but our highest wonder and admiration and seems to merit all the applause which can be due to the most heroic virtue The traitor, on the contrary, who, in some peculiar fashion, fancies he can promote his own little interest by betraying to the public enemy that of his native country, who, regardless of the judgment of the man within the breast, prefers himself, in this respect so shamefully and so basely, to all those whom he has any connection, appears to be of all villains the most detestable." The love of our own nation often disposes us to view with the most malignant jealousy and envy the prosperity and aggrandizement of any other neighboring nation. Independent and neighboring nations having no common superior to decide their disputes, all live in continual dread and suspicion of one another. Each sovereign, expecting little justice from his neighbors, is disposed to treat them with as little as he expects from them. The regard for the laws of nations, or for those rules which independent states profess or pretend to think themselves bound to observe in their dealings with one another, is often very little more than mere pretense and profession. From the smallest interest, upon the slightest provocation, we see these rules every day either evaded or directly violated, without shame or remorse." each nation foresees or imagines it foresees its own subjugation in the increasing power and aggrandizement of any of its neighbors and the mean principle of national prejudice is often founded upon the noble one of the love of our own country the sentence with which the elder cato is said to have concluded every speech which he made in the senate whatever might be its subject it is my opinion likewise that carthage ought to be destroyed was the natural expression of the savage patriotism of a strong but coarse mind, enraged almost to madness against a foreign nation from which his own had suffered so much. The much more humane sentence, with which Scipio Nisica is said to have concluded all his speeches, it is my opinion likewise that Carthage ought not to be destroyed, was the liberal expression of a more enlarged and enlightened mind, who felt no aversion to the prosperity even of an old enemy, when reduced to a state which can no longer be formidable to rome france and england may each of them have some reason to dread the increase of the naval and military power of the other but for either of them to envy the internal happiness and prosperity of the other the cultivation of its lands the advancement of its manufactures the increase of its commerce the security and number of its ports and harbors its proficiency in all the liberal arts and sciences is surely beneath the dignity of two great nations these are all real improvements of the world we live in mankind are benefited human nature is ennobled by them in such improvements each nation ought not only to endeavor itself to excel but from the love of mankind to promote instead of obstructing the excellence of its neighbors. These are all proper objects of national emulation, not of national prejudice or envy. The love of our own country seems not to be derived from the love of mankind. The former sentiment is altogether independent of the latter, and seems sometimes even to dispose us to act inconsistently with it. France may contain, perhaps, near three times the number of inhabitants which Great Britain contains. In the great society of mankind, therefore, the prosperity of France should appear to be an object of much greater importance than that of Great Britain. The British subject, however, who upon that account should prefer upon all occasions the prosperity of the former to that of the latter country, would not be thought a good citizen of Great Britain." we do not love our country merely as part of the great society of mankind we love it for our own sake and independently of any such consideration that wisdom which contrived this system of human affections as well as that of every other part of nature seems to have judged that the interest of the great society of mankind would be best promoted by directing the principal attention of each individual to that particular portion of it which was most within the sphere both of his abilities and of his understanding national prejudices and hatreds seldom extend beyond neighboring nations WE VERY WEAKLY AND FOOLISHLY, PERHAPS, CALL THE FRENCH OUR NATURAL ENEMIES, AND THEY, PERHAPS, AS weakly AND FOOLISHLY, CONSIDER US IN THE SAME MANNER. NEITHER THEY NOR WE BEAR ANY SORT OF ENVY TO THE PROSPERITY OF CHINA OR JAPAN. IT VERY RARELY HAPPENS, HOWEVER, THAT OUR GOOD WILL TOWARDS SUCH DISTANT COUNTRIES CAN BE EXERTED WITH MUCH EFFECT the most extensive public benevolence which can commonly be exerted with any considerable effect is that of the statesmen who project and form alliances among neighboring or not very distant nations for the preservation either of what is called the balance of power or of the general peace and tranquillity to the states within the circle of their negotiations the statesmen however who plan and execute such treaties have seldom anything in view but the interest of their respective countries sometimes indeed their views are more extensive the count de Beau, the Plenipotentiary of france at the treaty of munster would have been willing to sacrifice his life according to the cardinal de retz a man not overly credulous in the virtue of other people in order to have restored by that treaty the general tranquillity of europe king william seems to have had a real zeal for the liberty and independency of the greater part of the sovereign states of europe which perhaps might be a good deal stimulated by his particular aversion to france the state from which during his time that liberty and independency were principally in danger some share of this same spirit seems to have descended to the first ministry of queen anne every independent state is divided into many different orders and societies each of which has its own particular powers, privileges, and immunities. Every individual is naturally more attached to his own particular order or society than to any other. His own interest, his own vanity, the interest and vanity of many of his friends and companions, are commonly a good deal connected with it. He is ambitious to extend its privileges and immunities. He is zealous to defend them against the encroachments of every other order or society." upon the manner in which any state is divided into the different orders and societies which compose it and upon the particular distribution which has been made of their respective powers privileges and immunities depends what is called the constitution of that particular state upon the ability of each particular order or society to maintain its own powers privileges and immunities against the encroachments of every other depends the stability of that particular constitution that particular constitution is necessarily more or less altered whenever any of its subordinate parts is either raised above or depressed below whatever had been its former rank and condition all those different orders and societies are dependent upon the state to which they owe their security and protection that they are all subordinate to that State, and established only in subserviency to its prosperity and preservation, is a truth acknowledged by the most partial member of every one of them. It may often, however, be hard to convince him that the prosperity and preservation of the State require any diminution of the powers, privileges, and immunities of his own particular order or society." This partiality, though it may sometimes be unjust, may not, upon that account, be useless. It checks the spirit of innovation. It tends to preserve whatever is the established balance among the different orders and societies into which the state is divided, and while it sometimes appears to obstruct some alterations of government which may be fashionable and popular at the time, it contributes in reality to the stability and permanency of the whole system. The love of our country seems in ordinary cases to involve it in two different principles first a certain respect and reverence for that constitution or form of government which is actually established and secondly an earnest desire to render the condition of our fellow citizens as safe respectable and happy as we can he is not a citizen who is disposed to respect the laws and to obey the civil magistrate he is certainly not a good citizen who does not wish to promote by every means in his power, the welfare of the whole society of his fellow citizens. In peaceable and quiet times, those two principles generally coincide and lead to the same conduct. The support of the established government seems evidently the best expedient for maintaining the safe, respectable, and happy situation of our fellow citizens, when we see that this government actually maintains them in that situation. But in times of public discontent faction and order those two different principles may draw different ways and even a wise man may be disposed to think some alteration necessary in that constitution or form of government which in its actual condition appears plainly unable to maintain the public tranquility in such cases however it often requires perhaps the highest effort of political wisdom to determine when a real patriot ought to support and endeavor to re-establish the authority of the old system, and when he ought to give way to the more daring, but often dangerous, spirit of innovation. Foreign war and civil faction are the two situations which afford the most splendid opportunities for the display of public spirit. The hero who serves his country successfully in foreign war gratifies the wishes of the whole nation, and is, upon that account, the object of universal gratitude and admiration. In times of civil discord, the leaders of the contending parties, though they may be admired by one half of their fellow citizens, are commonly execrated by the other. Their characters and the merit of their respective services appear commonly more doubtful. The glory which is acquired by foreign war is, upon this account, almost always more pure and more splendid than that which can be acquired in civil faction. The leader of this successful party, however, if he has authority enough to prevail upon his own friends to act with proper temper and moderation, which he frequently has not, may sometimes render to his country a service much more essential and important than the greatest victories in the most extensive conquests he may re-establish and improve the Constitution, and from the very doubtful and ambiguous character of the leader of a party, he may assume the greatest and noblest of all characters, that of the reformer and legislator of a great State, and, by the wisdom of his institutions, secure the internal tranquillity and happiness of his fellow citizens for many succeeding generations. Amidst the turbulence and disorder of a faction, a certain spirit of system is apt to mix itself with that public spirit which is founded upon the love of humanity, upon a real fellow-feeling with the inconveniences and distresses to which some of our fellow citizens may be exposed. This spirit of system commonly takes the direction of that more gentle public spirit, always animates it, and often inflames it even to the madness of fanaticism." the leaders of the discontented party seldom fail to hold out some plausible plan of reformation which they pretend will not only remove the inconveniences and relieve the distresses immediately complained of but will prevent in all time coming any return of the like inconveniences and distresses they often propose upon this account to new model the constitution and to alter in some of its most essential parts that system of government under which the subjects of a great empire have enjoyed perhaps peace security and even glory during the course of several centuries together the great body of the party are commonly intoxicated with the imaginary beauty of this ideal system of which they have no experience but which has been represented to them in all the most dazzling colors in which the eloquence of their leaders could paint it those leaders themselves though they originally may have meant nothing but their own aggrandizement become many of them in times dupes of their own sophistry and are as eager for this great reformation as the weakest and foolishest of their followers even though the leaders should have preserved in their own heads as indeed they commonly do free from this fanaticism yet they dare not disappoint the expectation of their followers but are often obliged though contrary to their principles and their conscience to act as if they were under the same delusion the violence of the party refusing all palliatives all temperaments and all reasonable accommodations by requiring too much frequently obtains nothing and those inconveniences and distresses which with a little moderation might in a great measure have been removed and relieved are left altogether without hope of remedy the man whose public spirit is prompted altogether by humanity and benevolence will respect the established powers and privileges even of individuals and still more those of the great orders and societies into which the state is divided though he should consider some of them as in some measure abusive he will content himself with moderating what he often cannot annihilate without great violence when he cannot conquer the rooted prejudices of the people by reason and persuasion he will not attempt to subdue them by force but will religiously observe what by Cicero is justly called the divine maxim of Plato never to use violence to his country no more than to his parents he will accommodate, as well as he can, his public arrangements to the confirmed habits and prejudices of the people, and will remedy, as well as he can, the inconveniences which may flow from the want of those regulations which the people are adverse to submit to. When he cannot establish the right, he will not disdain to ameliorate the wrong. But like Solon, when he cannot establish the best system of laws, he will endeavor to establish the best the people can bear." The man of system, on the contrary, is apt to be very wise in his own conceit, and is often so enamoured with the supposed beauty of his own ideal plan of government, that he cannot suffer the smallest deviation from any part of it. He goes on to establish it completely, and in all its parts, without any regard either to the great interests or to the strong prejudices which may oppose it. He seems to imagine that he can arrange the different members of a great society with as much ease as the hand arranges the different pieces upon a chessboard. He does not consider that the pieces upon the chessboard have no other principle of motion besides that which the hand impresses upon them, but that in the great chessboard of human society every single piece has a principal motion of its own, altogether different from that which the legislator might choose to impress upon it if these two principles coincide and act in the same direction the game of human society will go on easily and harmoniously and is very likely to be happy and successful if they are opposite or different the game will go on miserably and the society must be at all times in the highest degree of disorder some general and even systematical idea of perfection of policy and law may no doubt be necessary for directing the views of the statesman but to insist upon establishing and upon establishing all at once and in spite of all opposition everything which that idea may seem to require must often be the highest degree of arrogance it is to erect his own judgment into the supreme standard of right and wrong it is to fancy himself the only wise and worthy man in the commonwealth and that his fellow citizens should accommodate themselves to him and not he to them it is upon this account that of all political speculators sovereign princes are by far the most dangerous this arrogance is perfectly familiar to them they entertain no doubt of the immense superiority of their own judgment when such imperial and royal reformers therefore condescend to contemplate the constitution of the country which is committed to their government They seldom seeing anything so wrong in it as the obstructions which it may sometimes oppose to the execution of their own will. They hold in contempt the divine maxim of Plato, and consider the State as made for themselves, not themselves for the State. The great object of their reformation, therefore, is to remove those obstructions, to reduce the authority of the nobility, to take away the privileges of cities and provinces and to render both the greatest individuals and the greatest orders of the state as incapable of opposing their commands as the weakest and most insignificant part six section three chapter three of universal benevolence though our effectual good offices can very seldom be extended to any wider society than that of our own country our good will is circumscribed by no boundary but may embrace the immensity of the universe we cannot form the idea of any innocent and sensible being whose happiness we should not desire or whose misery when distinctly brought home to the imagination we should not have some degree of aversion the idea of a mischievous though sensible being indeed naturally provokes our hatred but the ill will which in this case we bear to it is really the effect of our universal benevolence it is the effect of the sympathy which we feel with the misery and resentment of those other innocent and sensible beings whose happiness is disturbed by its malice this universal benevolence, how noble and generous soever, can be the source of no solid happiness to any man who is not thoroughly convinced that all the inhabitants of the universe, the meanest as well as the greatest, are under the immediate care and protection of that great, benevolent and all-wise being who directs all the movements of nature and who is determined by his own unalterable perfections to maintain in it at all times the greatest possible quantity of happiness to this universal benevolence on the contrary the very suspicion of a fatherless world must be the most melancholy of all reflections from the thought that all the unknown regions of infinite and incomprehensible space may be filled with nothing but endless misery and wretchedness. All the splendor of the highest prosperity can never enlighten the gloom with which so dreadful an idea must necessarily overshadow the imagination, nor, in a wise and virtuous man can all the sorrow of the most afflicting adversity ever dry up the joy which necessarily springs from the habitual and thorough conviction of the truth of the contrary system. The wise and virtuous man is at all times willing that his own private interest should be sacrificed to the public interest of his own particular order or society. He is at all times willing, too, that the interest of this order or society should be sacrificed to the greater interest of the state or sovereignty, of which it is only a subordinate part. He should, therefore, be equally willing that all those inferior interests should be sacrificed to the greater interest of the universe, and to the interest of that great society of all sensible and intelligent beings, of which God himself is the immediate administrator and director if he is deeply impressed with the habitual and thorough conviction that this benevolent and all-wise being can admit into the system of his government no partial evil which is not necessary for the universal good he must consider all the misfortunes which may befall himself his friends his society or his country as necessary for the prosperity of the universe and therefore as what he ought not only to submit to with resignation but as what he himself if he had known all the connections and dependencies of things ought sincerely and devoutly to have wished for nor does this magnanimous resignation to the will of the great director of the universe seem in any respect beyond the reach of human nature good soldiers, who both love and trust their general, frequently march with more gaiety and accolarity to the forlorn station, from which they never expect a return, than they would to one where there was neither difficulty nor danger. In marching to the latter, they could feel no other sentiment than that of the dullness of ordinary duty. In marching to the former, they feel that they are making the noblest exertion which it is possible for man to make." they know that their general would not have ordered them upon this station had it not been necessary for the safety of the army for the success of the war they cheerfully sacrifice their own little systems to the prosperity of a greater system they take an affectionate leave of their comrades to whom they wish all happiness and success and march out not only with submissive obedience but often with shouts of the most joyful exultation to that fatal but splendid and honorable station to which they are appointed no conductor of an army can deserve more unlimited trust more ardent and zealous affection than the great conductor of the universe in the greatest public as well as private disasters a wise man ought to consider that he himself his friends and countrymen have only been ordered upon the forlorn station of the universe that had it not been necessary for the good of the whole and they would not have been so ordered and that it is their duty not only with humble resignation to submit to this allotment but to endeavor to embrace it with accolarity and joy a wise man should surely be capable of doing what a good soldier holds himself at all times in readiness to do the idea of that divine being whose benevolence and wisdom has from all eternity contrived and conducted the immense machine of the universe so as at all times to produce the greatest possible quantity of happiness is certainly of all the objects of human contemplation by far the most sublime every other thought necessarily appears mean in comparison the man whom we believe to be principally occupied in this sublime contemplation seldom fails to be the object of our highest veneration and though his life should be altogether contemplative we often regard him with a sort of religious respect much superior to that which we look upon the most active and useful servant of the commonwealth the meditations of marcus antoninus which turn principally upon this subject have contributed more perhaps to the general admiration of his character than all the different transactions of his just merciful and beneficent reign the administration of the great system of the universe however the care of the universal happiness of all rational and sensible beings is the business of god and not of man To man is allotted a much humbler department, but one much more suitable to the weakness of his powers, and to the narrowness of his comprehension, the care of his own happiness, that of his family, his friends, his country. That he is occupied in contemplating the more sublime, can never be an excuse for his neglecting the more humble department. And he must not expose himself to the charge which Havidius Cassius is said to have brought, perhaps unjustly, against Marcus Antoninus that while he employed himself in the philosophical speculations and contemplated the prosperity of the universe he neglected that of the roman empire the most sublime speculation of the contemplative philosopher can scarce compensate the neglect of the smallest active duty end of section 31 end of the theory of moral sentiments by adam smith